Welcome to the Family Church Sermon Podcast. Join us each week as we look to the Bible to seek out what it means to love God passionately and love people personally. For more information about our weekly gatherings and how you can be part of our outreach, visit jointhefamily.church. Man, that's the beauty. It's the beauty that we get to gather. We get the privilege of gathering here together as the church on Sunday. The begin, begin out the week together, worshiping together. Think about it. The underground church in China has already gathered. The church in, over in England, they've already gathered. Here we are. South America has gathered. They got a little ahead of us. Here we are in the central time zone in the U.S. And here we are. We get to gather together and worship to Jesus. And so I'd like to invite you. We're going to talk about what does it mean to gather together. And what does it mean to uh, come together and to pursue Jesus together. So I'd like to invite you to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, open up your Bibles. I'd love for you to follow along. If you don't have a Bible, don't hesitate. We have some in the back. We'd love for you to grab one. We have ESVs and uh, CSBs, that's, uh, that's uh, not a disease. Those are the types of translations. Christian Standard Bible, English Standard Bible. I will be reading out of the English Standard Version this morning. And uh, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 6 together. Today's sermon message is entitled, Pursue. And we're continuing our Family Root series, where we really look at what is the core of what we do. And if you were a part of one of our community groups this week, including our group that just launched here on Sunday morning, you will notice that uh, some of these sound familiar because we're taking time to really unpack these each and every week and, uh, and, and really go into them further, deeper in discussion. Last week, we looked at what does it mean to say yes to Jesus? What does it mean to follow Jesus? This week, we're going to look at what does it mean to have believing prayers? What does it mean to believe in Jesus for what he calls us to follow him in? And so we're going to talk about what does it mean to pursue Jesus? What does it mean to give him everything? To read our Bibles every day, to pray, and to share our faith together. I'm going to back up, actually, uh, let's back up a verse. Uh, we were going to start in verse 6. Let's start in verse 4. It says, and while he was with them, talking about the, the 120, the, the, the remnant of, the, of, the, of the, the apostles and the followers that are still there even after his death, burial, and resurrection. It says, and while he was staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Verse 6, so when they had come together, there's beauty when, they, when the church comes together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when they had said these things, as they were looking on and, and he was lifted up and a cloud with him out of their sight. So he ascends into heaven 
And while they were there gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men, likely two angels, stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come back in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem, just like Jesus had commanded them in that first verse that we read, verse 4. And they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, Mount of Olives, uh, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath's day journey away. And when they had entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, Peter, John, and James, and Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, all these were with one accord and were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Here's the big idea today. Our big idea is this. Jesus calls us to pursue him. The big idea is simply pursue Jesus. Pursue him. And you may ask, well, how do you pursue him? Well, I I would encourage you to do it in three different ways. I would encourage you to read your Bible pray and share your faith daily. Today we're going to focus on how do we pursue him through prayer. Just as the early church was reminded of who Jesus was by Jesus himself and was empowered by his promises and waited on his Holy Spirit to come, that in those moments they couldn't do anything but else but devote themselves to prayer. So what does it mean to pursue Jesus? Well, first, we have to trust in his promises. And he reminded his apostles, at our first point, Christ promises the Holy Spirit. Christ promises the Holy Spirit. He promised the Holy Spirit to his followers. And, and as they were promised the Holy Spirit, Jesus had actually told them earlier on, he said, it's to my benefit that you go because the, that I go because the helper is going to come and he will guide you into all truth. And so here in this moment, they come to Jesus and Jesus has already appeared his death, burial and resurrection. And he's appeared to them for 40 days and they, and they see Jesus and they're excited that he's here. And he says, I'm about to go. And they ask, well, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Their concept of a kingdom, Jesus had to really wrestle with their concept of kingdom. Their concept of a kingdom, and maybe there's a lesson for us here today. Maybe even in our own very country. Their concept of a kingdom was a political entity. And that's, that's not doggone. Jesus didn't tell them to not be involved in their country. In fact, they were under Roman rule. He told them to render to Caesar what's Caesar's through the Apostle Paul and to render to God what's God's. And so they were to participate in their government. They were supposed to honor and pray for their leaders, as Paul wrote in the New Testament. But they were to know that the kingdom which ruled them on earth was not the heavenly kingdom that they were all longing for. That's why Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14 says, Here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. But their concept, they were like, okay, well, part of the Messiah coming, this is who Jesus was, and part of the Old Testament was promising that Israel would be restored. So now is the time where Roman rule is going to get overthrown and Jesus is, is going to establish his earthly kingdom here for us. The problem is, is that Jesus was not yet done. 
His mission is now carried on through us by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit that we'll see in Acts chapter 2. And, the, and we kind of live in this, this reality right now where we looked at the book of Revelation this past summer. We, we looked at this reality of we're in the already but not yet. The already but not yet. Yeah, we are, uh, as, as followers of Jesus, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. We are his temple. We are carrying out his kingdom purposes. But one day, all things will be made new and he will come back just as surely as he ascended. He will return just as he said he would. But like I said, they were expecting the restoration of a military and political kingdom. Most likely, this is referenced in the, between the book of Malachi and the gospel of Matthew, there's 400 years uh, what we call in theology, or, or what we believe, 400 years of silence, where, the, where God, God didn't sp speak anything specifically to the church in anticipation of the coming Messiah, which is Jesus, the Word made flesh. And so in these 400 years of silence, if you study church history, there's something that happens significantly. The Seleucid Empire had actually conquered Israel, and, but there was a revolt, an uprising, and a guy by the name of Judas Maccabees leads this uprising, and this, this, rule, this ruling party comes, which is known as the Hasmonean Dynasty. And then the Hasmonean Dynasty that gives way to Roman rule, which is the Herodian Dynasty, which is when Jesus, what Jesus is born into. But during this time, even under Roman rule, Israel had some sense of identity. Under the Seleucid rule, they had no sense of identity. They were, be, they were conquered. And so this revolt Judas Maccabees led was to really re restore and redeem the temple, which is what they saw as the place and presence of God. And what he did is he, they retook the second temple that had been rebuilt during the time of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Haggai, and Zechariah that we talked about in August. They, they took back that temple, and actually a pig had been desecrated, had desecrated and been offered on the altar and desecrated because it's against Old Testament law. And so the altar was restored during this, these Maccabean revolts. And uh, that's actually where Jews get the holiday. Can anybody tell me the holiday that they celebrate? Hanukkah. So when you ever hear, you hear Hanukkah, that's what they're celebrating, that the temple was restored under the Maccabean revolts, and the Jews now had access to God. We know as Christians now we have direct access to God. The, 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 the temple veil was torn, and there's no longer a temple there. In fact, you see that multiple things have been built up and around that location where the temple was. I believe there's the, the Dome of the Rock, which is kind of a, a Muslim mosque, is actually built built on top of where the temple, only remaining part of the temple that we can visit is what's known as the Western Wall. And I think it's a reminder that God is no longer bound by walls, that his Holy Spirit, Christ promised the Holy Spirit. He promised that the veil would be torn and we would have direct access to God. And he tells them in verse 8, he gives them a commission. Sometimes you might think of Acts 1-8 and not think of the Great Commission. When we think about the Great Commission, we think about going to the world and make disciples, right? 
like, like we're called to do. But the Great Commission is really a, a conglomerate of all these testaments, what Luke wrote, what Mark wrote, what John wrote, what Matthew wrote, and it's that we would be his witnesses. We would make disciples. Chapter 1, verse 8 of Acts, it says, you receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. This power in the Greek is a word called dynamis. It's the same word we get dynamite from. Something spectacular was going to be happening. Something explosive was going to be happening. And this was going to allow them to heal. This was going to allow them so that language would no longer be a barrier. This was going to allow the gospel to go from Jerusalem to Judea and all of Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Kind of the equivalent of, of, of Christ taking the gospel from Jefferson Parish to Louisiana to the United States to the other most parts of the earth. Well, their concept of kingdom was that Jesus was going to restore, just like Judas Maccabees had done, was going to restore an earthly kingdom. But does not to the ends of the earth sound like a kingdom? See, Jesus was not interested in a political kingdom because the book of Revelation tells us every political kingdom will cease to be. Jesus was, was mostly concerned with his heavenly kingdom. His heavenly kingdom that one day here on earth will all will be made new. Because that kingdom is not limited by just a geographic identity or a people group. See, long time ago to Abraham, Abram, God said in uh, Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, into verse 3, he says, In you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Not only did he bless Abraham and his descendants, he told Abram long time ago, through you the whole earth will be blessed. So if you're in here today, more than likely you don't have majority Jewish heritage. And if you are here, well, congrats, and you do. The majority of us in here were Gentiles. And so, in fact, we're a part of that Abrahamic promise that through him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And we get to be blessed. We get to be blessed to bless others, just as Abraham was called to do. And we bless others through the witness of the Holy Spirit speaking in and through us. This word for witness is the same word we get martyr from. Uh, it, witness literally means laying down your life. Maybe physically, maybe it, it's kind of like we talked about in our, our small group this morning. What does it mean to lay down everything? You know, it means different things for different people. But the Holy Spirit leads us to lay down things so that we can give Him everything. When it comes to following Jesus, anything less than everything, which He demands, uh, it literally means nothing. And it really means when we give Him everything... It means that our perspective changes, that everything that we have is used for his glory and our good. And you see throughout the gospel witness, uh, throughout the, the gospels, you see that this great commission was given. We've already mentioned Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. In fact, even today, opening the Bible, we're fulfilling what Jesus called us to do, teaching them all that I commanded you. That's what we're called to do. Mark 16, verse 15, go into the world and proclaim 
the gospel to all of creation. Luke chapter 24, verses 47 through 49. And the repentance of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins shall be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses to these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in this, in, in this city until you are clothed with power on high. Gospel of John chapter 20, verses 21 and 22, Jesus said to them, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and he said, Receive the Holy Spirit. The great thing about the Bible is we know it's true. We know it's true because these four different witnesses, Luke, Matthew, Mark, and John, all write the same story and they write it kind of from different angles. You know, when you tell a story, you know, you might not all tell it the same way, right? You kind of choose a different angle. And so what we see is in the Gospels, they're all sharing the same story. And all those great commissions that are given, even Luke repeats it again. You receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and, all, and to the ends of the earth. Do we not see that there's a pattern there? The pattern is go, make disciples, and you're going to receive the power to go and make disciples. And that power is the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's why Matthew ends his great commission with Jesus saying, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. But as these followers of Jesus, they, they sit there and Jesus has ascended into heaven, and all they can do is they can, all they can do is just stare into the sky. Wouldn't you do the same? Somebody dis disappeared in front of you, you know, you just, what, the junk just happened? Like, and what, what, they're just staring up, staring in the sky? And what do these two men, these two angels do? They quickly call their attention back to earth and what they're called to do. So here's the thing, we all long for the day when we will meet Jesus. We will meet him in the clouds. We will all will be made new. But until then, there is work to do. That's why the end of, of um, Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is sitting his disciples down or, and he's telling them, you'll hear of, you'll, he's telling about the end times. He's like, you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars and all these things. You'll be persecuted for, by, for my name. This is called the Olivet Discourse. We see this in the Gospels. He's really just kind of, he's not holding back. He's saying, this is what it means to take up your cross and follow me. You will be persecuted and crazy things will happen. He ends it and he says, and this gospel of the kingdom all nations may hear for my namesake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole earth as a testimony to all nations. So the great commission will happen. And then he adds this, and then the end will come. So this great commission, this, this glory and story of who Jesus is has to be proclaimed to the ends of the earth and then the end will come. Maybe you've wondered why has Jesus not returned? Well, there are places on this planet that have still not heard of the good news of Jesus. And you might be like, well, well, hey, the internet's everywhere. Yes, the internet has actually helped the Great Commission and radio signals have helped the Great Commission. Y'all know there are still places on earth where 
they have not heard about Jesus. And so we have work to do. There was that missionary a few years ago that got killed on North Sentinel Island, which is kind of in the Indian Ocean. Do you all remember that young missionary kid? He got killed and his body was left on the beach and it was a big, it was a big national debate and all that. Well, the North Sentinelese, are, they're completely like, you don't touch them. Like the, nobody knows their language. There, there are tribes in the Amazon today that literally helicopters go over and they see tribes in the Amazon and that have never had contact with the outside world other than seeing something crazy happening in the sky. The gospel has to go to the ends of the earth. What did, what did, um, what was Elizabeth Elliot's husband uh, that said, he is no fool to gain what he cannot, wait, hold on, I'm, I'm messing this, I'm messing this quote up, I should have put it in my notes. He is not, he is no fool to give what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. Um, look up missionary Elliot, and he was a missionary to uh, the Amazonian tribes, and, and he gave his life. He gave his life so that people would hear the good news, Jim Elliot, right? Yeah, Jim Elliot, that people would hear, and correct me after if I'm wrong, but uh, Jim Elliot, he, he, he had a perspective. I can't keep even this life, but in giving up this life, may my life be laid down so that people could hear about this good news. And you know what? That type of witness is not possible without the Holy Spirit. That type of witness is not possible without the dynamite power of the Holy Spirit working in and through us. And we know that this promise came to pass in Acts chapter 2 when tongues of fire descended upon the church and they all spoke in different languages, but they all understood it. And, and, and uh, the Holy Spirit came. And then Peter, the same Peter who denied Jesus, stands up and he gives this incredible good news message and 3,000 people get saved. So Christ promises the Holy Spirit, but here's how we respond to his promises. His people respond in prayer. Christ promises the Holy Spirit, first point. Second point is this, his people respond in prayer. Prayer is simply pursuit. You see, prayer doesn't change God because scripture says God never changes. Prayer does change us. It means that, it's not that God doesn't hear our prayers and respond according to his will, but what it does mean is that prayer is, a, is, an, is an activity of active trust where we pursue and we submit to the presence of God. In verse 12, it says they left the Mount of Olives and they, and they went towards Jerusalem. And it's significant that it's a Sabbath, Sabbath day's journey. Because in an old rabbinic work called the Mishnah, we learned that this is the a Sabbath day journey was the longest distance, about three fifths of a mile, was the longest distance that they could actually do on the Sabbath day, and so they go three fifths of a mile from the Mount of Olives back to the upper room, and they gather in this upper room. And y'all know naturally in Kenner, we have an upper room, right? We have an upper sanctuary. We're, we're blessed. We think it's a burden, right? We think it's a burden that we have a second floor sanctuary, but that's where Jesus meets us in the upper room, right? You know, uh, and so it's not that one day we might not have a bottom floor sanctuary, but for right now, we're blessed. And so the upper room then was, was usually on the third floor of a house, and wealthy Jews, uh, their third floor was, it was accessed usually by the outside, by an outside 
stairwell that they got up to this floor. Sometimes they rented it out or subletted it to poor people in the neighborhood, but it's also a place where people came together to study, where people came together to feast, where people came together to spend time closely with one another. It's kind of how the upper room is mirrored in the activity of the church. What do we do? We, we come together and we pray and we pursue God together. We come together and we learn together. We come together and we feast and we eat and we fellowship together. This is what the church does. This is why in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching to the fellowship, to communion, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And it means that, that this is the activities that we do when we come together for God. And so they go to this upper room, and, and Jesus used this upper room many times in, in, in the scriptures. We see in the Gospel of John, he used it as a, as a place where he washed the disciples' feet. We also know that a moment from now, we will take communion together. And the Last Supper took place in the upper room. We also know that he appeared to his disciples after his resurrection in the upper room. The Gospel of John chapter 20 verse 19 tells us we also see after this prayer activity, we see that since Judas had betrayed Jesus, they, they do this thing where they pray and they cast lots and the lot falls on Matthias and Matthias is chosen as Judas's replacement in the 12 apostles, the 12 disciples. And so we see that they did business in the upper room, business for the kingdom, the selection of Matthias. And it was in this upper room where the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost nearly 2,000 years ago in this very moment. The upper room is important because the upper room is bathed in prayer. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher from England, said this, the health of any church is, it can be accurately gauged by its prayer meetings. How we come together in prayer is, is really kind of dictates the health of the church. I love what Andrew Bonner says. He says, God likes his people to shut up to this, that there is no hope but in prayer. This is the church's power. There's power in prayer. It says in verse 14, let's look at chapter 1, verse 14. It says, and all these were with one accord. And they were what? Devoting themselves to prayer. Together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So we see that there's three different groups here. We see there's the apostles, the disciples. This is that 120 that were remaining. And we see that there were the apostles, the disciples. We see that Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the rest of his family was there. I know some people think that Mary remained a virgin, but I don't know if you know this. Scripture says that Mary had sons and daughters, Jesus had half-siblings. Yes, Jesus, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, but Mary knew Joseph and she had children. The Gospel of Mark tells us that Jesus' brothers were James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. If you didn't know, there's two books in the New Testament written by these men. The Gospel of James is Jesus' little brother, and Judas wrote Jude. He was also known as Jude. And he wrote he, the book right before Revelation. To Jesus' brother, this is how you know Jesus was who he said he was, that his own siblings knew who he was. 
that his own siblings were willing to give and drop everything to follow him. And so we see his family was gathered. We also see that women were there. And so we see that Luke has an interest in numbers. He tells us there's 120 left. It was probably a little bit more than 120 because usually the counting meant that it was men that were being counted. So that 3,000 that got saved, there was, or the feeding of the 5,000, it's typically more than that because they counted adult males during that time. But we see here is that, is that uh, Luke mentions that the women were there. These are probably the women that ministered with them as they were going all around Galilee and they were ministering to the crowds. It was likely the women that were there at the crucifixion, the same women that helped prepare his body and possibly even witnessed his resurrection as the gospels tell us. That it means this, Jesus is already setting, setting it up that there are no second place people in the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter your sex, your race, anything like this. You're all welcome to the table. You're all welcome to be a part of the kingdom. This is why Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, does this mean that identity doesn't exist? Does this mean that there's no such thing as male or female? Does this mean that there's no such thing as race? Y'all know in our society nowadays, everybody's picking their own pronouns and, and all these things, and they, you, you can claim that you're even a different race than you are. No, I don't, I don't think these things deny the way that God created us. What it's telling us is that the diversity that we have that is a result of our sin, the Tower of Babel, is being made new. And not only was Pentecost a sign of what was to come when all will be made new in the book of Revelation all will be fulfilled sin will no longer divide us everyone is welcome to the table God's people respond in prayer and it doesn't matter who you are he welcomes you to respond to him in prayer and what does it mean to respond to him in prayer John Polhill writes in the New American Commentary, he says this, there is no effective witness without the Spirit, and the way to spiritual empowerment is to wait in prayer. Now, Pentecost, pente means 50. Jesus uh, had, had appeared at the beginning of one of these festivals, and he appeared, and he died, well, he, death, burial, and resurrection, he appeared for 40 days, Pentecost happens at the 50th day. It means you take 50 minus 40. More than likely, these men and women of, of, of all different types were praying and trusting and waiting on God for 10 days. Now, that might not sound like a long time. You're like, man, I've been waiting on God for 10 years. I mean, they only had to wait 10 days. But they had laid down everything, everything. And he had promised them, hey, the Holy Spirit's going to come. Don't you think at day seven or eight, maybe they started to question, is this true? Is this true? Is he? It's kind of like us today. He's going to return. It's 2,000 years later. And we're like, is, is that true? Like, is, behold, I'm coming soon. Okay, is Jesus going to return? This is what it reminds us. Pursuing God in prayer is encapsulated by waiting on God's timing and trusting in God's promises. Let me say it again. We wait on God's timing 
and we trust in God's promises. This is why Jesus told them, it's not a, you don't need to know when. It's not really up to you. This is why every one of those silly documentaries you watch about like, you know, or prophecy, oh, the end of days is going to be this or whatever. Yeah, 2012, we were all supposed to be gone, right? You know, Y2K, we were all supposed to be wiped out. May we use those times when there's rampant speculation to just trust God, to wait on him and his perfect timing because he can come at any moment. He can come during the middle of the Saints game when we're whooping Tom Brady yet another time and he comes at halftime and we're like, Lord, why? You know, like, but it's perfect. It's perfect. He might save Tom Brady at that time from defeat, you know? That's a joke. But like God can come at any time and may we wait and trust on him to when he comes. Jim Cimbala, I mentioned his name before, the author of a great book called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, the pastor of the Brooklyn Tabernacle Church up in Brooklyn. You've heard of their choir before, the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. Great, great book. I encourage you, it's a great book on prayer that I encourage you to read at some point if you can. Well, Jim Cimbala took over a dying church. Uh, Brooklyn Tabernacle was down to a handful of people. And he said, okay, what we're going to do is we're just going to pray. We're going to pray and we're going to trust, trust in God. And so they prayed. And they prayed and they prayed. And they trusted God and they trusted God. And he writes in his book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. He talks about how prayer doesn't change God, but it kind of changes us. And we should go to him in our times of need. He says this, God is attracted to weakness. That doesn't sound right to us. We're like, no, we, like to, we don't want to be weak, right? Scripture says when we're weak, what? He's strong, right? So God is attracted to weakness. He can't resist those who humbly and honestly admit how desperately they need him. In fact, our weakness makes room for his power. Satan's main strategy with God's people has always been to whisper to them, don't call, don't ask, don't depend upon God to do great things. Has Satan ever mentioned that to you? Don't ask, don't trust. You know, Jesus, maybe he isn't who he said he was. Has Satan ever whispered those lies? You're not going to get through this thing. His main strategy, don't call, don't ask, don't depend upon God for great things. Trouble is one, trouble, now get this, trouble is one of God's great servants to his people. Now we don't like trouble. We've been through a lot of trouble, whether it be sickness, whether it be uh, the pandemic, whether it be the economy, whether it be hurricanes, like we don't like trouble, but trouble is one of the gifts that God gives us, Jim Cimbala says, because it reminds us of how desperately we continually need him in our lives. The work of God can only be carried on by the power of God, and there's no such power of God but then through human prayer, through praying, through submitting to God. I love what J.B. Phillips says. He says, the Holy Spirit has a way of short-circuiting human problems. Let me say again, J.B. Phillips, the Holy Spirit has a way of short-circuiting human problems. God's people respond in prayer. So I, I would invite you today to pursue Jesus, to pursue Jesus. And we, 
pursue Jesus by joining the family of God. Romans 10.13 says, Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I love, and Paul's just kind of recapping what Jesus said for people to deny themselves and to call upon Jesus. Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verses 23 through 26, Luke 9, 23 through 26, and I'll close with this. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Now cross might be something cute that we wear on our, on our, on our necks, right? But a cross was an instrument of torture. It was not desirable. And so Jesus is saying, take that up daily and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But for whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his soul? We need to hear that today. What does it profit a man if he gains everything but loses or forfeits his own soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and his holy angels. And I remember my, my childhood pastor, Buford Easley, always said this. And it was really an encouragement for me to make my faith public. And he wasn't shaming me into making my faith public, but he was saying, Scripture says if we deny Jesus, his holy angels as coming, he's not going to acknowledge us. Like, we are called to lay everything down and to follow him. Part of pursuing Jesus is that we read his word and we abide in what he's called us to do. Just as they did, Jesus told them, wait, wait and pray, and this is going to come. So we, even as his followers, we read scripture and we wait and pray uh, towards his promises, but it doesn't mean that we don't do anything. Prayer is active trust. It means that we get to work. We take up our crosses daily. We gather, like the early apostles, we gather in activity in the upper room waiting on Christ to come. And you know what? Christ came through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, empowering the church in Acts chapter 2, filling them and using them. And today, you and I are empowered in the same way. The same power that raised Christ from the dead now lives in you and me, and we get to respond. Respond. We get to respond by joining in the family, by acknowledging Jesus that he is who he said he was, and following him and proclaiming him to a world that desperately needs. So y'all, it's a, it's a joy to get to gather together as a church. It's a joy. Like it's, it's, this is a good time. This is fun. Better than any football the rest of the day, right? Better than the LSU game that Elijah and Colton went to last night. Better than the pig roast that little Abel was a part. Like, it's better than all of those things, right? Getting together with the church is joy. And it's joy because the Spirit of God is here. And the Spirit of God is pushing us out to bring His power and His presence to a world that desperately needs Him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You so much. That, God, you call us to follow you, but you don't leave us there as orphans. You promise us your, your very presence, that you'll be with us always to the ends of the age. So, God, just as you promised the Holy Spirit to the early church, today, as your people, we are filled with your Spirit. Lord, if there's someone here today 
or listening that does not know you as Lord and Savior, you promise them that the Holy Spirit will draw them to you. Your Holy Spirit will seal them until the day of redemption. So God, today I pray that we would call upon your name and we would trust in you. God, I pray today that we would pour out our praise to you as we go outside of these walls today and we share you to a world that desperately needs to hear. Jesus, we're here. We're yours. Help us to trust. Help us to be active in our trust. And help move us out of this place into what you're calling us to do. It's in your name we respond. Amen. Would you stand?